No work is insignificant. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity and importance and should be undertaken with painstaking excellence. Martin Luther King delivered that speech over 50 years ago to a church in Memphis, Tennessee, that was overflowing with sanitation workers on strike. Thousands of the Memphis sanitation workers had walked off the job one month earlier to bring attention to years of poor pay and dangerous working conditions. Dr. King gave this speech as part of the, part of the Poor People's Campaign and the Memphis sanitation strike would become a major part of that campaign. All labor that uplifts humanity has dignity. And with dignity, we should also be ensured safety. As Dr. King argued, the health and safety of American workers is a matter of social justice. Our second principle reminds us to strive for justice, equity, compassion, and human relations. As Dean reminded me before today's service, those seven principles are listed on the back of our order of service. It's, it's something that I often forget to look at on a regular basis. We have a right to equal treatment in society and a fair allocation of its resources. So I'm going to switch gears for a moment. How many people like to make their bed in the morning? Show of hands. So, with those hands still up, there's a very definite minority in the group. What if you had to make more than one bed? Would that change your mind? So, I'd like to use the hotel industry as a, an example. And, and I picked this for a reason. I knew, one, we might have some children in, in the group today. I, I recognize that mine might be the only ones here, and, and hopefully they're hearing this make your bed. Message. But but it's an industry that we can all relate to, something we see, something we rely on when we travel. And I'd like to share with you a story of um, one account of many that I have read um, and of thinking about Labor Day. And this is a story of Angela. She's a housekeeper. She works at a large hotel in Chicago, my hometown. Um, the hotel is the Hyatt Regency. And she moved to Chicago back in the mid-80s from Iguala, Mexico. And at the time, she was going to school to, um, to become a doctor. And toward the end of her medical school career, she met her husband. Her husband had gone to high school in Chicago, so she eventually moved to Chicago to join him. And several years later, she realized that she needed to work. She was, she was providing child care for family members, and it just was not giving her that dignity, she thought. So she applied for a job at, at the Hyatt Regency, and, and goes on said that she did give up when she moved to Chicago, her dreams of becoming a doctor. Because of her background, the only job available to her was that of a housekeeper, despite all the years of medical school. And she has been working there at the time of um, the printing of the book I read. It was in the mid, I think, 2000, um, 
15, 2016. So she worked as of that approximately almost 30 years. Every day she has 16 rooms to clean. So for those of you who are counting, how many beds does that make? And that's not bad, all things considered. Uh, a majority of housekeepers will sometimes have to clean as many as 30 rooms in a day. And she only has 30 minutes to clean each room. And she has to strip roughly more than 20 beds. So you can think about all this backbreaking work, and I haven't even gotten into cleaning the bathrooms. Um, but this was all a lot easier when she first started in the mid-'80s. There's one reason why. Mattresses were a lot thinner back then. So we all probably recognize that as consumers, we've come to expect these luxury mattresses. The hotel chains have gotten into what's called a mattress war, starting in the late 90s. And that matters to a housekeeper. I know we also like to stay someplace and have a restful sleep. But 20 beds, 100 pounds each, probably 125 reps of weightlifting for a total of 12,500 pounds each day. Angela is a very tiny woman. As a result of all of this repetitive work, many housekeepers, along with other workers who have repetitive movements as part of their jobs, experience excruciating pain. Angela experiences pain in her arms, in her back, and she refuses to take painkillers because they don't make her stomach feel very good. But she does recount that oftentimes at the beginning of the day, there's a line for the water fountain with housekeepers to take ibuprofen or whatever it is they need to get through that day of work. When she gets home each day, she's too tired to do anything. She doesn't cook. She doesn't clean her own house. She sits with her baby grandson on the couch and watches him play. Angela's story is one of the many stories shared by Jonathan Carmel in his book, Dying to Work. And during his account of Angela's experience, he, he comments that after hearing her story, he no longer leaves his towels in a clump on the floor of the bathroom when he leaves to check out. He now puts them in a place where it's easy for the housekeeper to reach, knowing that that's yet one other reason that a housekeeper would need to bend over in their backbreaking work that they do each day. I should also add that Angela and her employees at Hyatt do have the benefit of a union. Dean will be speaking more in more detail about the benefits that unions can provide workers. The labor union Unite Here was voted in in 2002. And while the union does give workers a voice, as well as mandated breaks, many of the workers choose to skip their breaks in order to get the work done on time. Housekeeping is one example of a service job that has a surprising rate of injury. In 2010, a study of hotel worker injuries found that housekeepers have almost an 8% injury rate, and that's 50% higher than any other hotel worker or than any other line of work in the hotel industry. And it's twice um, that for all workers in the U.S. Every industry has its share of injury, risk of harm, even death. And if you are interested about hearing um, about other industries, I would highly recommend Carmel's book, 
he does go into depth and takes a good a good chunk of the industries represented in a, by our nation's workers. The question that he keeps coming back to is what can we do to prevent workplace injury? And when have we done enough? Is our measurement zero workplace fatalities? And if so, we have a long way to go. In 2017, the Bureau of Labor Statistics reported 5,147 fatal injuries. And that number is not that different from year to year. It's roughly 13 per day. And there are industries out there like fishing and logging that are considerably more dangerous than others. I found as I was reading some of the themes that kept coming up were, why do these injuries happen? Well, some of it's speed. You know, oftentimes, we are tasked with a job in a certain amount of time, like Angela. And that's very prevalent in something like a hotel or a restaurant industry. Sometimes there's lack of training, and that's really rampant in this day and age. And then there's also the disregard of safety precautions, like having a second person there during a particular electrical job. OSHA, which stands for Occupational Health and Safety Administration, is the agency that was created in 1970 to ensure safe work environments. It has very little authority to do its job. The agency is severely underfunded and understaffed, having only enough inspectors to inspect workplaces once every 145 years. Remember recently I took my daughters to an ear piercing place and I had to present my driver's license because of OSHA. And I, I said, just out of curiosity, I was reading this book at the time and I said, oh, do they come by? I'm very, they come to the piercing pagoda. And he said, yes, they do quite often. Didn't believe it for a moment. So during the few years that I worked in the restaurant industry, I worked as a baker in a couple of local establishments. And I found myself identifying with stories that were shared by Carmel, not in some industries to the degree of risk that was taken, but I had to work as fast as I could. I remember I was charged with making the icing that we drizzled on our pastries. I was supposed to do that within two minutes with the timing. And the faster I worked, the more likely I burned myself in the ovens or I tripped. And for a few weeks, one of my workstations was a construction zone. And so the oven was not level. And in order for the oven door to stay open, I would have to gently guide it with one arm. And it wasn't a problem because I had my chef's jacket on. But every so often, the oven door would find part of my bare arm. If you ever ask somebody who's working in the restaurant industry, you know, they will often show you their forearms. They are usually marked with burns, as I did in the time there. And that's minor compared to some of the risks that other workers face on a daily basis. I was fortunate enough to be working in, a, in reputable restaurants that valued safety precautions among their workers. Not everyone is so lucky in their places of work. The first thing I should tell you is that you should never follow Jen and Brenna on the same topic. So I have been co-opted in some of the things I want to say. But you should also understand about me that I grew up in Pittsburgh, 
Now, we did have hotel workers, and we did have garment workers, but we had coal miners, we had aluminum workers, and steel workers. And when they went out on strike, the response from management was always to bring in the Pinkertons, not to investigate any crimes, but to make sure that you went back to work. And when that didn't work, they would bring in the judges and the police. Now, the strikes that I used to see were much different than we are down here. Now, they have signs that say, we are on strike, and the two guys playing pinochle on a table. In those days, if you were a scab going into a union mine which was on strike, you could expect to get a stick right alongside your ear. If you were an independent trucker, and the Teamsters were on strike, you could expect to get a round through your window from a bridge as you drove down the road. So those are the kind of people that, those are the kind of strikes that I saw. So, but that's not the purpose of my talk per se, except to say that the, the labor movement has not been one which has been uniformly recognized by everyone in this country as being positive. Some people say it's going to cost me more for a loaf of bread if they unionize. Others will see the working conditions. So we'll talk a little bit about the working conditions. And at the end of the day, I'm going to ask you to go back and see what our Right Here, Right Now campaign is all about. Because in Virginia, does anybody believe that we do not live in a plantation state? Does anybody believe this is a union state? Right. So the laws that we have here, anyway, we could, I can... Fire you because you complain that I've sexually harassed you. There are cases like that. You bring sexual harassment, I fire you. There's no protections for those who've been harassed. So, and as working conditions, there are very few, you know, honest to God, working conditions like you might find in Pennsylvania. But for us, one of the things that we need to think about is our first principle. Now, I, as Brenner was saying, for years, I've had the order of service in my hand. How many times have I turned it over? Except possibly to swat a fly or push a little air past my face? Probably not too many. But take a look at it because it says what I think is important that we should look at, the, the, look at labor through the lens of empathetic synergy and appreciate the power and presence of the unions in this country. They have, for the greatest part, brought about the changes that we have in our society. Martin Luther King pointed out long ago that without the unions, we'd still be dealing with 18-hour workdays. We'd still be dealing with right uh, children working, and when a child doesn't go to school, you lose the value of that child's mind. Because a child with a third grade education or less probably is not going to be able to make the same kind of contribution to our society as those who have been able to go through and expand in our society the talents that they have. Our job, in great part, is to assist those and respect those who are workers. And in that regard, the union strikes that you heard about, and there are others, for those of you from Chicago, you may remember the Pullman strike. Well, George Pullman thought it would be a good idea to cut the union wages by 30%. But since they lived in union, in, in 
company housing, he didn't cut the rent. Well, 30% for some people in those days was a lot of money. And they went on strike. And what happened? The Pinkerton showed up. The police showed up. A number of people were killed. They had to actually bring in, I think, Grover Cleveland to get these things to stop. Now, where I lived in New Kensington, we had a woman by the name of Sealands. And she was a union organizer. Fanny Sealands had come in from West Virginia, where she had been organizing down there. And the judge uh, asked her, said to her down there, a federal judge said, if you will promise not to come back and organize, I'll let you out of here. She said she promised she would, but she was back on the job the next day. It took Woodrow Wilson pardon to get her out of jail. But then she came to my hometown of New Kensington, where they were organizing uh, Allegheny Steel and Coal. She was out there. She saw a guy being shot. He was killed. She went up to rush, rushed up to help him to tell the police, they'll tell the police not to be involved. They shot her four times, and then one guy picked up a stick and hit her over the head after she was dead. But those, I'll say this, when you go to the Union Cemetery up there, the police aren't on the historical marker. There is a very large statue to her because these are the kinds of people who really took it upon themselves to do the right things. And I guess that's where I, where I really am. As you know, I get involved in social justice causes. And what I want us to do is to do these things in Virginia, pass legislation to respect the workers, to follow the principles of the back of our order of service. This isn't something we're asking you to do that you haven't already promised that you would do. In fact, our, our commitment to our church is that we, you will do what's on the back of the church whenever you can. So, I offer you that. I also offer you some thoughts on escalating inequality for those of you in the top 1.1%. These comments probably are aimed at you, but you probably won't do anything. But the rest of us are working for the top 0.1% of our, of our population who's making more money than a lot of others. And we're going to see, hear a lot more about that in the forthcoming campaign. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of people dislike the tax cuts that came along in 2017. I know people who are wealthy and they uh, don't like Trump, but they aren't going to send the, the, the money back to the government either. So I think that Many of the liberal candidates right now are interested in redoing the taxes, reusing the money for other, better projects, and we should support that also. So, what can we do? Well, first off, we can support unions. In 1973, more than one-third of private production was unionized. Now, there's less than 10% which is unionized. Uh, so, we need to support unions, because without the unions, do you think many of the employers are just increasing wages because they feel they have too much money? Have you ever heard someone say, I really feel guilty about how much money I've made, and I've decided to increase your wages on that basis? I mean, Scrooge is an unusual situation, if you think about that. So, uh, we need to get better candidates into office. 
who represent better UU and American values from my perspective. And so I have a call to action. Some of the things that I think we can do is make our own facilities useful if we have laborers who wish to meet discreetly without, I mean, if the employers are about it, they're going to penalize you. So if someone were to come to this church and say, we'd like to talk here, I think we ought to let them. I think we ought to support pickets and other actions by supplying them with food and water and even a friendly face and a hand wave. Uh, it's nothing better than believing that there are others on your side as opposed to people who don't care about you. And when, as we've been doing of late, we have marches, don't stay humble. Just watch TV, find out what Oprah has to say about the march. You know, if you have the opportunity and you're so motivated, please join in. At least write to your local newspaper. They do print these letters saying what you think. In a democracy like we have, we need to voice our concerns. When we don't voice our concerns, we don't support those concerns. And others will say, well, only 10% of the population said anything, so why do we have to do anything? The people in Richmond, the people in Washington, pay attention to the letters, the petitions that go in. When you send an email in, they count the emails. If no emails go in in support of a certain petition, then that means the populace doesn't care about that petition. So silence is not to our benefit. Uh, keep lists of anti-worker companies. If you see that some of the companies are providing low wages but poor conditions, you know, we've had boycotts of companies for a long time. Join the boycott if that's how you feel. And contact your local politicians. First off, as you know, I, I work with a variety of groups and we do contact politicians. We contact them in the office. But where do they live? Might be your neighbor. Might be somebody here in the congregation. They can afford to hear what you have to say. You're paying them to listen to you. So if you're the employer of the politician, why don't you get the opportunity to say, I don't like your policy? Many of these people actually will listen when they're not surrounded by like-minded, maybe Republican candidates, Republican politicians. By themselves, they're like everybody in this room. You, are, you hope to be liked because you hate to think that no one likes you at all. So they'll listen to what you have to say, and maybe you could make a point that will give them either cover for doing something they wouldn't have done or give them a new idea. Part of what we do when we go into D.C. is to educate people on other options. So we do that down in Richmond, too. We try to give people some thoughts about how things could be better. This morning, as I said, you have a, I got, got you an order of service insert. Uh, I'm not going to explain what paid sick day leaves, but maybe you like going to a restaurant where the worker is sick while you're ordering your hamburger and coughs on your french fries. I, I prefer not to have that experience, but I'm not here to tell you how you should live your life. <laughs> and don't cross picket lines. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. So I just have some closing words as we wrap up our, our sermon portion of the service and leave you with the question of what can we do to address the issue of justice, safety in the workplace? And Dean gave you some great ideas. 
steps that we can take. You can also go out and participate in the Right Here, Right Now campaign after service today. I'd like to leave you with a thought, with a broad perspective. I was recently attending New Student Orientation at Wesley, this the seminary where I attend, and someone from Human Resources got up and started talking about safe space. Or I thought she was saying safe space, but she actually used the term I hadn't heard before, brave space. And some of you may have heard of this, but I looked it up, did a little research, just to make sure I wasn't mishearing. And as it turns out, it's, it's something that is sort of being seen more and more, especially in academic environments. So a safe space, when I think of safe space, uh, I think of a therapist's office, or maybe a meeting where everybody has agreed that expression can ha occur without judgment. For me, this church is a safe space. I can get up and be vulnerable during joys and sorrows when I need to share something with the congregation. A brave space is a little different, and if anyone else is like me and had not heard that term, it's, it's a place that encourages dialogue. I think that's what Dean and I are trying to do today. In a brave space, we don't have to agree, but instead we can recognize our differences. In a brave space, each person is held accountable to share their experiences, but they must also listen to others. And this is the key point. They use what they hear to develop a new understanding. A brave space is intended to be a place where we can take action based on what we hear from others. It is through those new understandings that a call to action comes to life. And so we need both safe and brave spaces. And hopefully our church can provide both of those for us as well. So the next time you are traveling, put some thought on where you choose to travel. And when you leave, put the towels in an easy place for the housekeeper to reach. And today, take part in the Right Here, Right Now campaign. No work is insignificant, and no step to protect our workers is either. So may it be.